The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the Ellis Martin Report. During this broadcast, you will learn of potential investment opportunities involving publicly traded companies. These companies have paid us for exposure on this program. We ask that before you consider any possible investment choice, do your own research. You can begin the research process by visiting our website, ellismartinreport.com. Remember, if you do invest in any publicly traded concern, you do so at your own risk. Here's the host of the Ellis Martin Report, Ellis Martin. On this edition of the Ellis Martin Report, part two for this week, I'll speak with Gordon Neal of Silvercore Metals, Ross Orr of Backtech Environmental, John McConnell of Victoria Gold Corp., Eric Owens of Alexandria Minerals, and finishing off the program, I'll have a penthouse chat with the mercenary geologist, Mickey Fult, while we both experience a bit of expatriate relief in Vancouver, British Columbia. Let's begin the show. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with Gordon Neal, Vice President of Corporate Development for Silvercorp Metals, trading in the U.S. as SVM. Silvercore is a low-cost silver-producing Canadian mining company with multiple mines in China. The company recently commenced commercial production at its GC project in southern China. The company's vision is to deliver shareholder value by focusing on the acquisition of underdeveloped projects with resource potential and the ability to grow organically. Gordon, Welcome back to the program. Nice to see you. Thanks for having me again, Ellis. If you don't mind, we have new listeners all the time. Just give us a brief overview of the company. We're a Canadian company with assets in China, run by Canadians, with a head office in Vancouver. We have six mines in the Ying District in the Henan Province and one mine in the Guangdong Province. It's a silver, lead, zinc mine, and our primary metal that we sell is silver. Now, you're generating revenue. It's significant. You're offering a dividend to your shareholders. Let's talk about your earnings. Yeah, we had a great year this year. We did a hundred and 83 million dollars in revenue and gross profits of 82 million net income of 43 and cash flow from operations was 80 million and our net income increased by 580 percent i mean it's a it's a very large number and we have 95 million 97 million dollars in the bank we have a dividend as you said we're dividending out two cents us a year with no receivables and we have no long-term debt part of the reason we got to where we are this year silver price helped and so did lead and zinc however dilution control for us was critical we're we're a narrow vein mining company. We have 224 veins in the Ying District. The Ying District accounts for about 85 to 90% of our operations and our revenue and profits. And we have 224 veins on that property. Most of them are narrow vein, and so dilution control is critical. And we were able to manage our processing of ore to extract the maximum amount of that silver, lead, and zinc. Now, we've discussed this in previous broadcasts, but you have consistent grade. It's 300 grams per ton, approximately, and you're set to go for quite a long time no matter what the sector does. Yeah, we are grade guys and that's an important thing. High grade's important. We just put out a resource, I think it was in February, and if you look at the mining schedule, AMC put out the report, with the resource that we have, which we have another 20 years left of mine life, what's important if you look at the mining schedule is over the next seven to eight years, we have access to 300 grams per ton material. So if you look at our numbers that we just put out, if you look at the fact that we can do 300 grams per ton for the next seven or eight years, if the silver 
price maintained itself anywhere between 15 and 17 dollars an ounce we should be able to put out these kind of numbers as long as we manage our dilution control and our operating costs and we are the lowest cost highest margin silver producer not many people know that but that's the truth we should over the next seven to eight years be able to generate I would say between 30 and 50 million dollars in profits if the silver price stayed at between 15 to 17 people ask me always ask me what's going to happen to the company if the price of silver goes up well everybody knows if the price of silver goes up we all do well and I never know what that silver price is I do know that over the last 10 to 15 years the silver price fluctuates and goes down so if even if it went down to ten dollars an ounce at 300 grams per ton silver corp would still be a profitable company I can't tell you exactly how much we would make but we are a company because of grade that can make money when the silver price goes backwards and for me that's a metric when you're investing in mining companies when the price goes back on any metal does the company have the grade profile to be able to be profitable or at least sustain itself does grade really determine in some capacity the cost of production which in your case is either a, a dollar per ounce or, or a negative cost. Yeah, the higher the grade, the more leeway you have for your expenses. And the lower the grade, the less leeway you have. The actual formula that I was taught when I worked at Mag Silver by Peter McGaw and Dan McGinnis was your net smelter return should equal two times your operating costs to give you an internal rate of return of at least 17%. If your net smelter return isn't two times your operating cost to give you an IRR of a minimum of 17, I, I like to use 20, then you're going to be fighting a losing battle. That metric fits us perfectly. Now, when it comes to your share price, potentially there is room for quite a bit of upside in the coming months and years, depending on the market, of course, and simply uh, exposing your company to new investors. Yes, we just relisted on the New York Stock Exchange. We're hoping that will help on the liquidity side and, and a bit some price drive. The market's a little soft right now in all cases, but in looking at our recent results, our price to earning ratio is about 15. And we're putting out, I'll add that to our um, our presentation shortly. What we're seeing right now is that we're at the low end in terms of valuations on the PE. We're at 15 and our competitors are between 18 and 24 on the price of earnings ratio. So we have a lot of room to grow on the price side for Silver Corp. And of course, it takes a strong management team to get there. Yep. No, we've got strong management. This company's been around for 11 years, 12 years, and it's gone through some of its paces, as most companies has its up and downs. But right now, the management team is a strong team. We're looking at acquisitions. We've got cash in the bank. We want to grow organically, but we can grow inorganically as well by looking for creative acquisitions, which we are on the hunt for right now. Gordon, it's always a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much for joining me today in the program. Always a pleasure, Alice. Thank you. I've been speaking with Gordon Neal, Vice President of Corporate Development for Silvacorp Metals, trading in the U.S. as SBM. Listen to the segment again on our website, ellismartreport.com. Did you hear something worth repeating? Find all segments of this program on our website, ellismartinreport.com. Once again, here's Ellis Martin. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me for a conversation with Ross Orr, the President of Backtech Environmental Corporation trading on the CSE under the symbol BAC and in the U.S. as BCCEF. Backtech is a pioneering environmental technology company that has developed and commercialized a proprietary technology to remediate highly toxic tailing areas, resulting from abandoned mining operations. In addition, the company recently added processing of arsenopyrite ores produced by artisanal miners in South America to its slate of offerings. 
Ross, welcome back to the program. Thanks, Ellis. If you don't mind, give us an overview of the company. Well, we're an environmental company that uses naturally occurring bacteria to clean up historic mining problems, mostly tailings, where there's a lot of sulfides that are thrown out with the tailings that oxidize over time and create sulfuric acid called acid rock drainage. And then, of course, it contaminates the local environment. So we've found a niche for our bioleaching technology that allows us to go in and remove the sulfides, use the bacteria to oxidize them, and then keep the metal for our own account. Now, as I understand it, you're on your way to becoming a gold and silver producer. How does that work with a company such as yours? Well, we signed a deal a few years back with the Bolivian government. They approached us and showed us, I think, 26 projects. We decided to pick the low-hanging fruit, the one with the best grade and the lowest capex. Oddly enough, our first project in Bolivia with them is not a bio-leach candidate. It's just a simple gravity flotation circuit. But the contained metals in the tailings along with the sulfides, are silver, copper, and tin. And people don't realize that tin trades for over $20,000 a ton or almost $10 a pound. And it would be probably the largest metal component in those tailings. We look at Bolivia as a cash engine because we think the real upside for our bioleaching technology is going to be unveiled first in southern Ecuador and then Peru, Colombia, and into Central America. Everybody's heard about the problems of these artisanal miners. If you think of the 7,000 or 700 thousand dwarfs that go out every day mining and producing product that they tend to use mercury on to try and get the gold and silver out of it. We are trying to get them to stop using mercury and use conventional flotation to make a concentrate that then we will buy. The reason that we want to buy it is because of the high levels of arsenic that are in the concentrate. Bioleaching is very good at stabilizing arsenic. Now I noticed that the silver grades in these tailings are very high. Is that because they're concentrates? How much is there potentially? The grades that we've been announcing for the silver values at the Telamayu project in Bolivia are over 10 ounces per ton, as high as 16 ounces per ton. And I think you have to go back into history and to see what they were mining as a head grade. Bolivia is a jewelry box. It has a lot of different metals as well as rare earths, etc. But I think the, the mine that produced the concentrates that we're dealing with in Telamayu, I think the head grade was around 300 ounces of silver per ton. So by missing out on, say, 10 ounces, they're only losing 3%. Likewise, the copper was not a focus of theirs, so it was passed right through to the tailings. And the tin values were quite high as well. And again, they didn't get the last 1.7% is what the average grade is of the tin tailings so far. It might have been 10-15% when it was run through the mill. So what's the plan going forward for Bolivia specifically? Well, Bolivia, phase one is the drilling, assaying, metallurgical test work, and 43-101 report. That's to be done by mid-July. And then by the end of March, March of next year, we have to have the plant up and running. So we should be seeing cash flow this year or early next year, which for a company that has a market capitalization, so they have about two and a half million dollars Canadian, our internal numbers show us exceeding 5 million U.S. a year in cash flow. This is after we've already paid off the debt and we get our 45% share. We get 100% of the cash flow until we get our capital back and then it goes 55-45 in their favor. A lot of people say that's not a good deal and I say, well, they're giving us power, they're giving us the asset, they're giving us the mill housing, there's a railway that runs right by the tailings. I think it's a pretty good deal. So there's no permitting issues? Well, again, you're permitting environmental reclamation. So Bolivia is very, very pro-Mother Earth and we don't foresee that being a problem at all going forward. If in fact, something that they want to get onto right now, we've got to relocate a new place for the tailings that's underway. It's not a simple project, but it's a relatively 
straightforward and not a lot of bells and whistles on it. And I can't wait to get to cash flow so that we can use that cash flow to fund the other projects we want to do with bioleaching in the Andes. So you anticipate that cash flow beginning in 2018? I would say in the first quarter of 2018, yes. What news can we look forward to in the next few months, do you think? Well, I got another chunk of uh, drill results, the final chunk to come out next week. We drilled uh, 57 holes in total on these tailings on 20-meter spacing so that we could actually be confident that we know where the metal is in the tailings. And then, of course, by mid-July, you'll probably have the 43101 report will be completed and the engineering. And then we're on to the next stage. I would hope that we're going to source this equipment maybe out of the Far East in Asia, just because it's a lot cheaper. It's only a five-year project at 100,000 tons a year. There is another option. We have an option on a much bigger pile across the river, which is about 4 million tons. We don't know a lot about it. We decided to incorporate it into our project because if everything is bought and paid for over the five years, it might be a lot cheaper than to start bringing material through from the bigger plant, even though the grades may not be as good as the small one. So this is a nice model for reclamation globally, isn't it? I would think so. Yeah, it's a government participation project, which is interesting. We tend to deal with governments mostly in what we do because miners tend to leave the bad stuff behind and then move on or go bankrupt, one of the two. A lot of these projects fall into the hands of the taxpayer or the government. They're now starting to say, let's take this sour lemon and turn it into an orange. Let's make some money off this thing while we're cleaning it up, which is something that we've been proposing for the last five or six years. So it removes all political risk potentially because, you know, people wonder with Latin America. Yeah, and I, I I think Bolivia, of course, probably has one of the poorer reputations as far as nationalizing things, but we're not big enough. This was a project that will generate revenues at today's prices of about $30 million a year, with half of that being your cash flow. But again, it's not big enough for them to risk the wrath of the international community by taking it away from you. It just doesn't make any sense. What does the share structure of the company look like, Ross? About $60 million out. We probably know where half of that is. I mean, it's in fairly strong hands. Ross, as always, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks so much for joining me today in the program. Thanks, Alice. Appreciate it. I've been chatting with Ross Orr, the president of Backtech Environmental Corporation, trading on the CSE as BAC and in the U.S. as BCCEF. Listen to the segment again on our website, ellismartinreport.com, or download the entire Ellis Martin Report on iTunes or your TuneIn Radio app. Who are the small companies with big opportunities? Find an assortment of potential investment opportunities. Start by visiting our website, ellismartinreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me for a conversation with John McConnell, President and CEO of Victoria Gold, trading as VIT on the TSX Venture Exchange and VITFF in the U.S. Victoria Gold Corp. is a leading gold exploration and development company. The company's Eagle Gold Project in Yukon, Canada, hosts a 43101 compliant reserve of 2.7 million ounces of gold. The Eagle Gold Project is shovel-ready and when in production will produce 200,000 ounces of gold annually at an operational cost of approximately $550 per ounce. The project is permitted for construction and operations. Victoria shareholders are well positioned to participate in a highly leveraged gold play and construction of the largest gold mine in Yukon history. John, welcome back to the program. Hi, Alice. Great to be here. Now, you are in the process of building the biggest mine in the Yukon. You'll be producing gold. It's very, very significant. What's involved in putting a mine together? Well, well, there's lots of aspects. I think our focus right now is getting the detailed engineering done. So we're working with a group called JDS and Hatch Engineering and, you know, things like the uh, crushers and that are all being designed, the gold recovery plant 
just spent uh, the last three days with the engineering team going through it in reasonable detail to make sure they're on the right track. And then the next step is to uh, kick off construction. We're looking at doing a few things over the next few months that we refer to as site capture, getting all the roads in place, getting the camp finalized, and then we're going to focus on the heap leach pad itself. So we've got some work to get done there this year and we'll kick off that earthworks uh, late in August, early September as a, it's the best time after the summer has dried out the ground a little more. So uh, we'll probably be working right through until uh, mid-December on earthworks. We'll take a little break for the coldest months of the year and come back late March, early April and get right at it in full construction. With the, the schedule we have, we should complete construction early in 2019 and be pouring gold uh, mid-year 2019. How is that going to change the culture of the area when you've got a large producing gold mine? We're not seeing it now, but we're going to see it with Victoria Gold. What do you think we'll see? You know, it's a big operation. We'll employ 400 people at the peak during construction and then similar numbers during operations. So it's going to have not only a, a big impact on the Mayo and the local area, but it's going to really drive the economy of the Yukon overall. So we'll see a variety of development outside of mining just to support that industry, correct? You know, one of our commitments is to use local contractors, local people as much as possible. And uh, the Yukon's great because you actually have some sizable construction firms that operate out of Whitehorse. There's a, a big crushing firm that operates there. There's, uh, you know, the concrete we can source in the Yukon and use Yukon people. So it's, it's going to be a big project, and uh, I think uh, once we're in operations, uh, other than government, we'll be the largest employer in the Yukon. And you'll be able to source all that locally, do you believe? We would hope over time that uh, most of our employees uh, live in the Yukon. We're anticipating that when we start, uh, we'll be flying people in and out. Uh, probably, you know, 60 to 70% will be from outside of the Yukon. Are you seeing the mining culture change now? A lot more young people involved, perhaps even uh, quote-unquote millennials you know it's it's been a it's been an old man's game for a long time is that changing in your opinion yeah i think mining itself has become very modern it's very high tech you know, a lot of the equipment can be run remotely now, so young people are intrigued by it. And, uh, you know, personally, I can't think of a better place than to, to be living in a small town in northern Canada to raise a family and have them grow up there hunting and fishing and playing baseball. Uh, a lot of the things you don't see in a urban setting. Definitely very beautiful up there. I look forward to the next tour in July, I believe, that I'll be on. What about innovative technology? W will you be implementing some of that with your project? Yeah, you know, we, to start, want to keep it simple. You know, you don't want to, when you're in the north uh, particular, you don't want to be testing new technology. As I said, you know, remote control of haulage trucks, shovels, drills is, uh, you know, becoming um, more in use these days. So we'll be looking at that. Certainly the process plant will be largely automated. So yeah, 
new technology has a place in the mining business. It's always great catching up with you, John. Thanks so much for joining us today in the program. Thanks, Alice. I've been speaking with John McConnell, President and CEO of Victoria Gold, trading as VIT on the TSX Venture Exchange and VITFF in the U.S. Listen to this segment again on our website, ellismartinreport.com. High-quality but undervalued mining stocks are finally starting to attract the attention of investors. Get the latest news and resource stock investment opportunities with a subscription to Resource World magazine. Published six times a year, Resource World features in-depth articles on mineral area plays, commodities of interest, and valuable investment insights by highly qualified market analysts, geologists, and mining journalists. Go to resourceworld.com to find out more. I'm Ellis Martin. Eric Owens is the president and CEO of Alexandria Minerals Corporation. Alexandria Minerals Corporation trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol AZX and in the U.S. as ALX. DF. Alexandria is an active, growth-oriented Canadian gold exploration and development company with strategic properties located in the world-class mining districts of Val d'Or, Quebec, Red Lake, Ontario, and Snow Lake, Flint Flon, Manitoba. Alexandria's focus is on its flagship property, the large Cadillac Break property package in Val d'Or, which hosts important near-surface gold resources along the prolific gold-producing Cadillac Break, all of which have significant growth potential. Eric, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Alex. Pleasure to be here. Let's give our listeners an overview of the company. Alexandria is a gold exploration company. We're focused on a rather large gold exploration property package in Valdor, Quebec, which is one of the world's premier gold mining districts. And Quebec in general has been a very active gold, both mining and from the exploration stage as well very active in the last year or two especially and our activities have been focused in particular on our Oronada Zone 4 deposit which is in the western portion of this property package and uh, we've been just recently completed somewhere around 11.1 thousand meters drilling this year so far. I know you've identified additional significant mineralization and very nice grades as referenced through your latest news release. You have a 43101 compliant resource as of 2009 that's current, but what you are now in the process of defining is very significant potentially compared to that resource. Of course, we're going to have to wait for the drill hole data to be rendered complete, and we don't have all the info just yet. What can you tell us about your latest news release? It's significant because it adds considerable volume to the high-grade gold veins that we are discovering in our most recent round of drilling. The resource, as you've noted, dates from 2009. That was constructed or calculated on the basis of one vision of the deposit using data from a predecessor company, and that was viewed the deposit as a disseminated gold deposit in this near-vertical shear zone. We are have, in fact, identified high-grade veins, in fact, a series of of parallel high-grade veins, flat-lying high-grade veins in this deposit. So we now no longer think of it as a disseminated deposit, but as a series of high-grade veins in the shear zone. So it's critical. The importance is that we now have come around and are drilling it from a totally different direction and intersecting these high-grade veins, which weren't intersected previously because they weren't being drilled correctly. And this is all open pit, correct? We hope so. This is very early stages in this. So we drilled, as I said, about 11,000 meters of drilling here. We've got about 35 holes that we drilled this year. We're still waiting for assays for 22 of those 35 holes. The assay labs have been busy up here in Val d'Or, Quebec, and we've been waiting for a while to get 
assays back on some fairly critical holes. But basically, of the holes that we're waiting for, we've got a bunch of step-out holes to the west of the resources that we're eagerly waiting for and could add some considerable potential to this deposit uh, as we move forward. With 22 holes in the assay labs, as you said, stacked up the way they are, we can expect news flow throughout the rest of the summer and into the fall, can we not? I expect to finish the results probably by mid-summer, I would expect. We should be re-drilling by then, but I expect that we'll have every couple of weeks an announcement of more assays coming out of our holes over the next, say, two months or so, maybe three months at the most. We're encouraged because, as I note, the the hole we released today, which uh, intersected very wide, robust gold veins, including 9 grams per ton over 13.8 meters, and even a much wider zone from the 3.82 grams per ton gold over 63, roughly 63 meters. They tell us that the zone is quite robust here. And back to your question of an open pitable thing, even though we look at these things as a series of high-grade parallel gold veins, they sort of act in the same capacity as what you might look at as a mine for a disseminated deposit. So we look at it as a bulk tonnage operation. I think each one of these veins by themselves probably wouldn't be mined, but collectively they make a good bulk tonnage story. And at what point will we have a new compliant indicated resource? Our next phase of drilling, which we expect to begin here in the next three to four weeks after the spring thaw finally dries out here, we anticipate a 30,000-meter drill program, which will test three sectors of this project that will consist of uh, infill drilling and step-out drilling, basically, to the east and the west of the resources. Our goal is to have a new resource estimate by the end of this calendar year. And for that, we need to do about 30,000 meters of drilling and complete that by, at the latest, mid-September and preferably earlier than that. And I think three drill rigs should be able to handle that over the next three to four months or so. Now, you and I aren't the only believers in your story. You have some institutional investors that are worth noting. We have a lot of supporting actors out there, so to speak. In particular, most recently and notable has been the addition of the Sprott Group in general with us. They've helped finance last December, as well as Eric Sprott himself has stepped in and invested in us as recently as a couple of weeks ago, three weeks ago or so, we closed that financing. I understand that overall Sprott is very hopeful about the next 18 months in the sector. Yeah, it's great. They're quite involved. They're helping to get the word out. They're introducing us to a lot of people, and that's what we need. We need to get the story out to as many people as possible and have people pay attention to what we're doing. Of course, you also have projects in Manitoba and Ontario. What's going on there? Our purpose with those properties are to either let them just lie low a little bit because our real focus is what we're doing at Oronada in Valdor, Quebec. We have joint ventured off or signed agreements, signed joint venture option earning agreements to have other junior companies earn in their portion to these properties while completing exploration work on those things. So we've done that with our Matachuan properties. We've done that with our Shibugamu, Quebec properties, and Matachuan being in Ontario, also along the Cadillac Break where Valdor is located just west of this, west of us here. Then we also signed a deal with Probe uh, Metals to have them earn in an interest in the eastern third of our Valdor property, so a portion of that. That's a nice one because it's blue sky or a moose pasture, so to speak, well-placed, good, well-located, but there's been very little work done on that, and we don't have time to do work on that. Our Manitoba properties are nice. I like those because we have some gold-copper resources, zinc and silver, minor metals as well with that. 
that. But we don't have to do any work on those, and I, I'm sort of saving those for a rainy day, or maybe somebody wants to make an offer as copper prices start to increase. They're gold-rich, so I like that story, and there's upside potential on, on these things as well. Overall, what would you say to the potential investor looking at Alexandria for the very first time? Why should they consider getting involved? It's a good growth story, just pure and simple right off the bat. It's a growth story from the exploration activities we have. If we do everything right between now and the end of the year, I expect to see a resource developed that's going to be in in the upper 250 meters that will be open pitable. It's the goal if everything clicks in the way we want it. That over a two-kilometer stretch of the Cadillac break, which could potentially have in between a million and a half and two million ounces of open pitable material, in the Valdor district and, and having something like that in Valdor will be worth a lot. Now that's just the first step. We think there's a lot of growth potential beyond that, both along strike and at depth. We're not going to concern ourselves yet with the depth part of it. We're going to keep our drilling shallow and test the, the near surface stuff first. After the first resource, I would anticipate spreading our wings a little bit beyond that two kilometers and branch out along strike even further. With that in mind, considering that our market cap is 30 or $40 million these days, Canadian that is, that's about $40 million, I guess. We're quite undervalued compared to other similar companies and other similar staged companies. So as we move down the path of bringing this new resource out, I think we'll be able to see some upward pressure on on our stock price. That's the hope anyway. Well, Eric, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today. We look forward to updates as they happen over the course of the next few months and into the fall. Thanks so much for joining me today on the program. Thank you, Alice. Always a pleasure. I've been chatting with Eric Owens of Alexandria Minerals Corporation, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol AZX and the U.S. as ALXDF. Download the entire Ellis Martin Report on iTunes and on your TuneIn Radio app. Who are the small companies with big opportunities? Find an assortment of potential investment opportunities. Start by visiting our website, ellismartinreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a visit with Mickey Fulm, the mercenary geologist, for a free-form discussion about this and that and the other thing. On location at the Penthouse Studios North, of the Ellis Martin Report in beautiful downtown Vancouver, British Columbia. Mickey, welcome back to the program. Well, thanks for inviting me back, Ellis. Always fun to sit down and have a chat with you. It's funny, we're both from Albuquerque, New Mexico. You live there, I get there from time to time, but every time we chat, it's never there. It's always somewhere else in the world. Well, this is true, but I think we should stand a bit corrected. We're not really from Albuquerque, uh, although I've spent two-thirds of my of my life in Albuquerque, but I'm transplanted from the Ozarks of Missouri, and I know you came from another part of the world. Too. The Hudson Valley, upstate New York, if, well, not that upstate. And although I spent a year in Missouri running two country and farm radio stations in the Kansas City area in the mid-90s, and I had to give that a try, and they laughed at me when I arrived because I'm from California and also New York, not a good combo in the Midwest, right. but we had a good time. Yeah, so I'm from south of the Missouri River and the Ozarks, and it's a bit different uh, when you get out of the Ozarks. So there's the Ozarks of Missouri, and there's the northern half of Missouri. And, uh, no, you're right, like Joplin and Lamar in that area. Uh, yeah. Did you ever spend any time in Branson? Uh, yeah, lots as a kid before 
it was really what it is now. There was a, an amusement park called Silver Dollar City, which I think actually shut down a couple of years ago, but it was a great place to uh, take your date. So you, you drove, it's I think about 40 miles from where I grew up. It'd take you an hour and a half to get there with all the hills oh, and yeah. the windy roads. and uh, But uh, Branson was fun during the day. You know, and it's a it's a real nice drive through that area, and and those were the days, weren't they? Those were the days where, no matter what your political affiliation as a newscaster, the viewer did not know. You could watch TV, you'd see Walter Cronkite, clearly a liberal, but you never knew it from watching the newscast. And those days are gone, Mickey. They're completely gone. Well, those were days of uh, real journalism, and now it's all people with an agenda. Uh, they're not really j journalists. They've got. A platform that they're promoting whether that be on the right or the left or the middle and so there it really is in my opinion no fair and balanced news anymore because so much of it is fake so much of it is spin so much of it is what the people that run these organizations are trying to promote in in their politics and I find that frustrating. It's not only frustrating, it's not manageable. I mean, not when the entire culture is, is so biased either on the left or the right and, and the people in the middle have really no power. Yeah, it's it very much is polarized. You know, Obama came into office under the platform that he was going to be rid of the polarization of political view and the United States. But you and I knew that was bullshit. From the well, start, right? uh, there's a lot of <laughs> bullshit going on there. Yeah, and so he left office, and you know every poll that you would look, he left office with the country much more polarized than it was before he took office. But he hasn't left office. I, let's put quotes around that that uh, <laughs> left office. There. <laughs> well, he certainly has an agenda, and and you see that in some of the protests and the town halls of congressmen they go back to their districts and they are basically cannot listen to the people because the opposition will show up and shout down just with really unruly behavior so you know it's those are uh, bought protests too they're paid for. well absolutely they're bought and paid for you know and some people make their living doing so some of that sort of stuff um you know, I've been up in Canada now uh, for nearly two weeks, and I've escaped from a lot of that because I'm not inundated with it the way I am in the States. Uh, so I actually have to go on the Internet now and, and try to find out what's going on in the United States. Uh, uh, and one thing you see up here is uh, the cable TV, American cable TV, quote, news networks. you got to pay money. You get CNN for free basic cable and you don't get Fox News, you don't get Fox Business, you don't get CNBC. So the story coming out of the States is very much on one side and you know I tend to in the United States I listen to a variety of, of programs. So I listen to uh, National Progressive Radio, for instance, in the morning, NPR, because I want that, I want a full far left to far right spectrum where I can make up my own uh, libertarian mind about the way I see things. And, and I don't think Canadians quite get that 
balance that you can get in the United States if you so choose. You take all the views and you reach your kind of what actually floats your boat, if you will. I don't think Canadians are actually as politically polarized as Americans are. It doesn't affect their their, their meals, <laughs> you know, like it like it does in mm. our country. And, and they, they carry on without the... Uh, without a lot of the noise, and I think that noise is distracting. Anytime you spend any time of any kind of energy on a particular subject, if it's not benefiting your, your bottom line, which is your paycheck, or your home, what's the point? That's why I don't like what's going on. It, it yeah. serves no purpose. Yeah. I mean, you can talk about politics all you want, but at the end of the day, you have no f- effect on it unless you're a politician or you're behind the scenes in, in a politician's life. There's no point. Well, I would agree wholeheartedly with that. I'm going to go off topic a little bit here and talk about what's going on in British Columbia right now. So they had split votes. They had the Liberal Party versus the National Democratic Party, the NDP, which is quite far left. It would be uh, viewed in the United States as Socialist Party. And then the Green Party, and no one... No one got a majority, so they're going to have apparently a minority government rule, which is quite curious. It's something that I don't think could happen because we we don't have a parliamentary government in the United States. But and that and then I'll segue back into the polarization of America, which we think is holding us back. Perhaps I don't think that's going to change as long as we have a two-party system. Or what's the alternative to a two-party system? The benevolent dictatorship that the left wants? <laughs> well, I don't know. I just know that the two political parties are ingrained in a Washington media politico-lobbyist culture that I personally think has been of detriment for America when combined with a military-industrial complex. It's going to be really hard for to make America great again. I just had a conversation with Giant Bandari. I don't know if you know him. Oh, I absolutely know him well. In fact, I speak at his annual Capitalism and Morality uh, seminar. So excellent. Yeah, and you know, you know, he's from India, and and you know that uh, <laughs> you do know that <laughs> you do know that, and he doesn't mind telling anybody. He doesn't mind telling us or or our audience that. Uh, that democracy there just does not work, and it's not really working anywhere. <laughs> well, he, he's an anarchist. Yeah, democracy does not work. I mean, America was not founded as a democracy, it was founded as a republic. And there's a big difference between a republic and a democracy, and uh, majority rules is. Uh, not always the best way for a country to be run. And the fact we have this two-party system and Trump won an electoral college vote he, in terms of popular vote. He lost by quite a bit, but if you take California out of that equation... And New York City. And New York City. Uh, you don't even have to take New York City out of it. You take California out of it, and he won the popular vote. Uh, it could be argued, and some people will do this, that if he had campaigned in, Col- in California, uh, he could have probably certainly narrowed that three million vote difference. Not but, much. But, but really what it was, he was smart enough to uh, realize that all he had to do was win the electoral college vote. You know, it's, what's the solution? Well, maybe 
Prince Maybe Trump, Trump is part of the solution because he bucks the Republicans and he bucks the Democrats. He bucks the Washington deep state, if you will, and he's pissed most people off on one side or the other. But this populist uprising that we had in the United States, uh, personally, and I'll, bear in mind, I'm a libertarian, and so I'm not either. I'm not a Republican, I'm not Democrat, I'm socially very liberal. And I'm economically very conservative, but the idea that maybe we could bust up this two-party system. Uh, we saw Bernie Sanders bust up the Democratic Party. We've seen Trump uh, essentially ignore the mainstream Republican Party. And maybe there's some hope for America because of that. There may be some hope. He may be successful in, in at least breaking down that system, but it may take him down in the process. I hope not. I'm not trying to be negative, but will he survive? Do I think? don't know. The, certainly the left is trying to do everything they can to, uh, by one way or the other, eliminate his ability to serve out a four-year term. Uh, I'm confident that they cannot impeach the man unless he does something absolutely illegal. I would hope that he's smart enough not to do that. But it's, it's tough, but even as tough as it is for him to govern as he would like, and we said we weren't going to talk about this, That's but, but no, we've ahead. seen the bureaucratic permit process, the ability to get things done, the ability to roll back uh, regulations which have hindered small business. That holds, that's turned 180 degrees since Trump was elected. We have pro-development things going on. We got two pipelines approved. Uh, we've got expediting permitting, uh, which is dragged on and on so of some of the mining projects that, that you and I know about. That. So from that point of view, the bureaucratic hurdles for people doing business are rapidly being removed or changed or changed to the better toward a pro-development scenario, which is good because it means creating jobs for Americans. You know where I'd like to see that continue to change? I don't know if it's going to happen. I'm sure you have an opinion on it. All over Northern California, parts of Southern California, and Santa Fe County, New Mexico. Wouldn't that be nice? Not going to happen, though, is it? No, it's not going to happen in those local jurisdictions because you, you have too many uh, not in my backyard, NIMBYs, if you will, and you have too many uh, bananas build absolutely nothing uh, anywhere near anything, sorts of local politics and people that are really, in my opinion, completely anti-development and, and socialist wealth distribution, distributor types. And so no matter what would happen in federal government, Local government's not going to go along with that, but, you know, we both live in the West where there's lots of federal lands, and so those sorts of impediments we had under eight years of an Obama administration are coming off very quickly. So do you, you think we're going to see more and more and more of these, uh, these federal jurisdictions open up? I absolutely. 
I'm convinced of it. Yep. So that's fantastic for our sector, right? Yeah, well, it's not only fantastic for our sector, it's fantastic for America because it's going to create jobs and, and it's going to create middle class jobs. It's going to put the loggers back to work and the drillers back to work and, and, you know, the kind of the meat and potatoes, bread and butter of the heartland. And the heartland really is, it's everything except the left coast and the east coast and, and perhaps a small uh, upper tier Great Lakes uh, uh, part of a part of the U.S. But everywhere else, you know, people uh, make their living by doing something uh, that maybe isn't pushing paper or selling, uh, selling retail. And so we need those, we need blue collar jobs in the United States. And, and I'm convinced, I, I think, personally, I think that's the way out of the quandary we are in now with a stagnant economy is to create, put the working man back to work. And that's the the people that supported Trump to begin with. And you're really working the earth, and we can, everything we consume comes from the ground in one form or another. Really, there's enough abundance in this planet and in the United States to feed everybody, clothe everybody, and, and uh, provide an extra... You sound like you might be a cornucopian, which is, which yeah. is what I am versus a Malthusian. And for people that don't quite get those two, uh, two uh, nouns... Uh, Look it up on Wikipedia. No, I, I think know what they, it is. Well, I know that you know what it is, but <laughs> some, our some of our audience may not. And, and you know, I, I've written a piece, uh, piece or two on it. I wrote one called, uh, Will the Earth Ever Run Out of, Na of a Natural Resource? And, uh, and no. <laughs> if, if things started to run out, we mine lower grades or we find substitutions. I went on BNN a few years ago. This is a little anecdote. And I was asked that question. Uh, will the earth ever run out of natural resources? And I thought, or they asked me, has the earth ever run out of a natural resources? And I thought about it and go, yes, we have. Bird guano. We mined all the bird guano in the world from 1840 to 17, which is fertilizer, high, very high level nitrate fertilizer. Most of it went to England. It kind of changed agriculture in England. And by the mid 1870s, we had mined all the bird guano in the world. And it was basically a very unique uh, geographic and climate and uh, geologic environments. Uh, offshore uh, in Peru where there were these massive 40 meter high uh, bird droppings essentially accumulated for years and years on very dry uh, arid islands and we went in and mined all that and all of a sudden we're running out of bird guano so, so what what did we do as good engineers and geologists we went in the atacama desert of uh, northern chile and found nitrate deposits in the world's driest desert and so that supplied the world with nitrate fertilizer up until world war one and what happened in world war one well the germans didn't have access to those nitrates and what did they do they invented a way to fix atmospheric nitrogen into nitrates which is a way ammonium which is the the way that we fertilize our fields today so we have all the nitrogen we need it just came down to the fact that when do we develop the technology and at what point does it become economic and you have that information handy 
<laughs> well, you know, I'm a commodities guy, so I, you know, I wake up at four in the morning, and I and I can't say I thought about bird guano this morning, but uh, but it's all this cornucopian sort of idea and your basic philosophy of life that we have everything we require on the earth, and uh, when we need it, we'll find it, and we'll find a way to make it work. All these jobs so-called jobs created pushing paper and, and running a bureaucracy that absolutely contribute nothing to abundance. Uh, it's, I, I don't get it. Well, I don't get it either, but I've never worked in one of those jobs. I don't work for the government as you are and I am. We're both entrepreneurs and venture capitalists and we like risk and, uh, and I think we've both been successful enough that we don't probably, uh, have a lot of financial worries for the ends to the ends of our lives but uh, you know this is what capitalism is all about this is how people progress and uh, let's hope with a uh, at least four-year Trump administration America gets back to more uh, capitalistic viewpoints because it is the only economic system that works in the world it's not perfect nothing in the world is perfect I've written about that too but I like the fact that it looks like we're on the road to a society that values capitalism more than it has perhaps for the last uh, 15 or 20 years. Well, Mickey, it's always interesting speaking with you. I'm glad you had a chance to uh, drop by and visit with me today. Thanks so much for joining us on the program. Thanks a lot, Ellis. Always my pleasure. I've been chatting with the mercenary geologist, Mickey Fulp. His website is mercenarygeologist.com. Subscribe to his musings. I'm Ellis Martin. You've just heard opinion, commentary, and dissertation involving publicly traded companies seeking your potential investment. They paid us for the privilege. Invest at your own risk and only after doing extensive research. Find our sponsors and listen to segments of this program again on our website, ellismartinreport.com.